I want to say good morning to you all. This is Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shante Charles, and we have on our agenda Wednesday. Wednesday, W-I-N-S-D-A-Y. And I hope that you're winning on today. This is also Relationship Wednesday. We're going to be diving into what happened to you, conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. But I want to say something to, um, to sort of, and also we're going to be looking at love stories God told today. I want to say something to those of you who are, are dealing with, I like to call it hyper-religiosity. That is a term, by the way. And I'm noticing that even as we are moving out of moving, we will move out of February into March, which is Women's History Month. I'm noticing this consistent demonization of blackness, whether it's black people or more specifically black women. Just. I'm just noticing it and tying it into or justifying it by saying um, we have we we have to be pure, we have to be righteous, excuse me, we have to be holy, and then turning it into looking for something evil in someone else in order to justify your demonization of that person. I had someone yesterday, um, there was a conversation happening around Beyonce, as usual. (laughs) And I have to preface these comments by saying, I'm not a Beyonce fan. I'm not a Beyonce stan, fan, I'm not a beehiver. I'm not any of that. I don't listen to Beyonce's music. I've heard some, obviously, because you can't help but hear her. She's all in the culture, permeating throughout the culture. So there are people that use her music clips, right? There are uh, companies that use her music. So it's hard to not have heard any of her music, right? But I don't listen to Beyonce in my personal life. She's just, she's not my jam. However, that being said, I have common sense to know when someone is being demonized, even if I am not a personal fan of them. And her, I also don't listen to Lizzo. (laughs) Her, Lizzo, Megan Thee Stallion, I don't listen to their music. But I have common sense enough to know when someone is being demonized. And I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm concerned because I'm seeing lots of people who, if they are in their relationship with Christ, like they purport to be or say they are, they wouldn't have time to demonize these women. They just would not. You cannot convince me unless your job is in gossip unless your job is in the media (laughs) you don't really have time to be paying attention to these women's lives if you're paying attention to your own so i had 
um, <clears throat> a conversation where I, I spoke out and I said, I noticed that, you know, there is an increased demonization of black women in particular. And someone had the nerve to respond by saying, well, it's not just black women. They've, they've demonized other, you know, we, we've, we've called out other women who are demonic in their presentation. So my question is, is it demonic or is it just inappropriate? Do you feel like it's inappropriate? Because in some instances, yes, you could say that some of the things they've done is maybe inappropriate or not appropriate for all ages and audiences. But we have to stop labeling everything as demonic. We really do. I, I need us, and I'm talking specifically to the faith community, specifically to Christians. We've got to stop putting the label of demon on every single thing. When you do that, when you do that, this is the kinds of things that happen, okay? This is the kinds of things that happen. People have to go back and write a whole book on how women were demonized because of their social status, because of their um, empowerment, because of how they were moving up in society, because of their land ownership, because people wanted what they had. And rather than just being honest about that and saying, I want what they have, they demonized them, which led to their murders. So I, I just feel like we're, we're sort of repeating some of the previous patterns of history. And, and I don't think that people are fully aware that you're playing right into the same kind of trope that has always been out here about women. If I hear one more person use the words Jezebel and Delilah out of context, Just stop. Stop. I, I plead with you to take a step back from what you're saying and really think about what it is that you are saying. This person proceeded to say that, well, she puts, she puts her, her satanic actions before all of us. I'm like, you know what else is satanic? Accusing people of being satanic and they're not. <laughs> you know what else is satanic? Lying on people. Yeah. You know what else is satanic? Giving people a bad character and accusing them of things they haven't done. That's satanic. You know what else is satanic? Teaching doctrines that are not true. And convincing millions of people that they are. That's satanic. Then this person proceeded to say that uh, Beyonce's child's name, Blue Ivy, was an anagram for by evil. I said, now I have heard some ridiculous stuff in my 45 years of living. But I think that one takes the cake. So now because we don't like or they don't like the mother, 
Now we have just moved on down the line to foisting some kind of demonic ideation or concept onto her child's very name. This is what we're doing, Christians. This was a Christian woman that said this. And then I said, let me go look at this person's profile and see what is on there, right? So I click on the person's profile and lo and behold, it's an envelopian. If you're on TikTok, you know what an envelopian is. It's an envelopian. So I said, this just adds insult to injury because now we have a person of pallor that's coming into a black space onto a black person's space and asserting these things about Beyonce and her black child. I'm like, do you not understand <laughs> how your racism is teaming up? Your racism is teaming up with your demonization of other people? So, of course, at this point, I blocked him. Because I'm like, what we're not going to be doing on, uh, what we're not going to be doing on whose internet I want to say today. <laughs> what we're not going to be doing on uh, Michael Jordan's internet or LeBron James's internet. What we're not going to be doing is we're not going to be continually playing into these tropes. So I need us to understand that just because we like, don't like something or don't like a person or just because we don't agree with how that person is choosing to present themselves in the world does not automatically make it demonic. And now that I'm done with that soapbox, let me talk about, because I think a whole lot of Christians need to read this book. <laughs> let me ask you the question, Christians. What happened to you? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. We're talking about post-traumatic wisdom. Post-traumatic wisdom. We last left off about talking about how walking can be very um, regulating for people, getting out and moving their body. So let's continue um, Oprah's going to jump to another topic here, but we're going to keep reading for the next, say, 15 to 20 minutes, and let's hope that we can make it through this chapter, chapter seven, post-traumatic wisdom. Now, I don't think we'll make it through this chapter if I go ahead and, and look at the other book, and I think I want to do that. So let's find a good stopping point in this book, and then we'll hop over to Love Stories God Told. Oprah says, as she opens up another conversation point here, I remember the first time I interviewed Elizabeth Smart's parents. You may recall that Elizabeth was taken at knife point from her home in Salt Lake City at the age of 14 and was held captive for more than nine months. When I interviewed her parents after she was recovered, I asked, what has she said about it? What have you talked about? And they told me she hadn't said anything yet. At the time, I was surprised, but I now understand that they were waiting for her in her own time, in her own way. Because as you saying, 
as you're saying, if you control when and how much a traumatized person talks, it can be re-traumatizing rather than healing. Exactly. We want to provide therapeutic healing interactions, moderate, controllable, and predictable interactions. Remember the way you described talking with Gail and the little boy who told the checkout clerk that his mother was dead? Controlling when, how much, and which aspect of a traumatic event they share allows a person to create their own therapeutic pattern of recovery. No one knows what a moderate dose of revisiting a trauma memory is better than actual than the actual traumatized person. For the little boy in the grocery store, it was literally only a few seconds long. We've talked about a lot of patterns of stress activation that create sensitization, which is essentially the opposite of resilience. But when we activate trauma memories in our stress response systems in ways that offer controllability and predictability, we can begin to heal a sensitized system. Healing takes place when there are dozens of therapeutic moments available each day for the person to control, revisiting and reworking their traumatic experience. When you have friends, family, and other healthy people in your life, you have a natural healing environment. We heal best in community. Type that into the chat. We heal best in community. Community is not always immediate family members. So I do want to clarify that because sometimes when people hear community, they think family. And sometimes family may be where your trauma is coming from. Creating a network, a village, whatever you want to call it, gives you opportunities to revisit trauma in moderate controllable doses. That pattern of stress activation will ultimately lead to a more regulated stress reactivity curve. So the traumatized person with a sensitized stress response can become neurotypical, less sensitized, less vulnerable. In fact, they can ultimately develop the capacity to demonstrate resilience. Now, this word neurotypical is now also being examined as a part of white normative culture. And, you know, people are now saying as they as they start to decolonize not only their faith, but they're starting to decolonize their um, processes for healing. A lot of people are saying, hey, when we say neurotypical, oftentimes we're referring to a normative standard for white culture in white society. So let's revisit that and let's think about how we're using that word because anything outside of that people tend to label as neurodiverse, right? When sometimes blackness is categorized as neurodiverse, when it's not necessarily neurodiverse as much as it is, this is our cultural way of thinking, doing, being, speaking in the world. So just put a plug in that. The journey from traumatized to typical to resilient helps create a unique strength and perspective. That journey can create post-traumatic wisdom. For thousands of years, humans lived in small intergenerational groups. There were no mental health clinics, but there was plenty of trauma. I assume that many of our ancestors experienced post-traumatic problems, anxiety, depression, sleep disruptions, but I also assume that they experienced healing. Our species could not have survived if a majority of our traumatized ancestors lost their capacity to function well. Now I want you to take that statement that he just made 
And I want you to look at it in the context of the enslaved. Our species could not have survived if a majority of our traumatized ancestors lost their capacity to function well. So think about that in the context of the enslaved. How did they maintain their capacity to function well? Most of us could probably give you a few, list a few re, uh, ways in the comment section. Singing while they worked, dancing, drumming, um, going out into nature, going out in the middle of the night to commune with one another and to commune with God outside of whiteness. That's how they didn't lose their capacity to function well. Resisting tyranny in the small ways that they could. I remember one time we were reading from the enslaved narratives and um, one of the things that they would do that just, I was like, these, our ancestors were funny. One of the things that they would do is they would string wire across a road. And when the enslavers or people were coming through on their horses, they would lift the rope or the wire and they would trip up the horses and cause these people to fall. And nobody realized that they were doing that. That was one of their ways of resisting and responding to what was being done to them. We often have these very passive, very docile interpretations of what happened in the past, but that's not reality. Have you all seen Black Twitter? You're going to tell me that we, we were only that funny and that salty in the 21st century? You don't think that our ancestors gave us that genetics come on come on all right so just think about that the pillars of traditional healing were one connection to clan and the natural world two regulating rhythm through dance drumming and song three a set of beliefs values and stories that brought meaning to even senseless random trauma and four, on occasion, natural hallucinogens and or other plant-derived substances used to facilitate healing with the guidance of a healer or elder. Yeah, herbalism, also known now, um, well, now known as herbalism, but back then demonized as voodoo. Yeah. It is not surprising that today's best practices in trauma treatment are basically versions of those four things. Unfortunately, few modern approaches use all of the four options well. The medical model over-focuses on psychopharmacology, medic over-medicating people, and cognitive behavioral approaches. It greatly undervalues the power of connectedness and the power of rhythm. Think about that. Where did black people find the power of connectedness and the power of rhythm? Somebody drop it into the chat. The power of connectedness, going into a space where it was us, where we were safe, 
where we could talk out our trauma, where we could talk about our trials, where we could talk about our victories, where we could talk about our, our triumphs and rhythm. So as much as we know that there are things that need to be deconstructed in those spaces, you also have to understand that those spaces were supposed to be spaces of resistance and healing. And if we don't think in, and if we think that they don't realize that those spaces of testimonials, those spaces of coming together as community, those spaces of regulating ourselves through wisdom is literally the last bastion for a lot of people here in the United States. If we don't seem to understand that, that as much as we need to address the things that are happening in those spaces, at the same time, those spaces from the outside are being also targeted because they know that if those spaces are used in a proper manner for empowerment, if those spaces go back to being used in the proper man, uh, manner, not for exploiting the people that come into those spaces, but for helping those people to release and be free and be empowered and come out with plans to resist tyranny, if we go back to using those spaces for those reasons, they have trouble on their hands. So before you get back to using your spaces for what they were initially being used for, this is a great time to tear it all down and to convince you that there is no use for them, that there is no significance to them. This is a great time to do that. So if you're going to be in a basilica, then make that basilica a place where you are helping people to heal. Make that basilica a place where you're helping people to resist. Make that space a place where you're empowering people, not just spiritually, but mentally, emotionally, financially. And so the basilicas that are, start, that are doing that those basilicas will be under attack in one way, shape, or another because you're using it as a liberation space, not just as a space where people go and in the great by and by, their lives will get better. The doctor says here, I once worked with a four-year-old girl named Allie. She had witnessed the death of her mother at the hands of her father, who then committed suicide. Allie lived in a very close-knit community, and after the traumatic loss of her parents, she moved in with one of her aunts. There were easily 30 cousins, aunts, uncles, and grandparents living in the community, and they were always together for birthdays, holidays, and family events. Allie was a part of an active church. She played sports, and she had a very supportive elementary school with trauma-sensitive teachers. Part of our work with her was educating the adults in her life, including her teachers, about trauma. In the first weeks after Allie was found, we saw her about three times a week. Within a month, it was down to once a week. 
After the first year anniversary, we needed to see her only once a month. Six months later, we told her aunt to simply reach out if there were any questions or problems. The last I heard about Allie was that she'd been elected class president at her middle school, was active in sports and her church, and was doing very well in school. She and her aunt reported no significant symptoms. Of course, there was sadness on occasion, but Allie was a positive, happy, engaging girl. The scars remained, but she was weathering well, and she was a wise soul. She had developed post-traumatic wisdom. I love that. Allie's experience has a positive outcome. So isn't that example of a isn't that an example of a child being resilient? Absolutely, but not because she was born resilient. Allie was able to show resilience in the face of tragedy due to the quality of loving relationships earlier in her life. Resilience is a capability that can wax and wane, not a permanent innate trait. If Allie hadn't had a safe, stable, and nurturing family, an understanding teacher, or her strong faith, her ability to bounce back would have quickly drained away. Her ability to heal and continue to demonstrate resilience was related to ongoing safe and stable relationships through which she could make sense of horror and put it in the context of her beliefs. Even the most seemingly resilient people can be drained by relational poverty and ongoing stress, distress, and trauma. Ask yourself today, as we're talking about winning on this Wednesday, Am I relationally rich or am I relationally impoverished? Do I have a community? Do I have a group of people that I can go to, that I can talk, that I can hold things with in confidence, that I can rely upon, that will pray for me, that will be rooting for me? We often see the hashtag, and I use it, I'm rooting for everybody black. Do you have people that's rooting for you in your life? If you don't, I want to encourage you to join our community, the We Dare Squad. We are on a private chat with each other. We check in with each other. We share with each other. We pray for one another. We mourn with one another. We celebrate each other's wins. We pray for each other in our losses. We pray for each other when we're not having the relationships that we know we need to have in order to be healthy. We care for one another. And we do that in community. Um, You can check out our community through Patreon, patreon patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues. But a lot of what we do is is not on Patreon. It's in other spaces, but that is how you connect with our community. I try to reach out every quarter and I provide things for the squad um, that I believe that speaks to who they are, that encourages them. And I do that on a quarterly basis, but we also meet outside of social media. So again, ask yourself, are you dealing with relational poverty? Are you 
relationally rich. Ask yourself, out of all of my family members, and we're going to stop there in this book today. Out of all of my family members, do I have at least one, two, three family members that I can count on, that I can reach out to, that I can say, hey, I need to have a conversation. Something is bothering me. Something is on my heart. Something is on my mind. Have you considered therapy? If you're dealing with trauma and you feel like no one can relate, it's things that are so horrific that you can't even tell anybody or you don't feel comfortable telling anybody yet. Betterhelp.com. They offer payment plans for therapeutic services. I encourage you to reach out to a therapist. Relational coaches, reach out. I am a relationship coach. Um, at the moment, I do not have a whole lot of time to do one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, but I will be doing some group coaching very soon in the near future. And when I offer that, I will, you know, make it known on this platform. But think about those things. Ask yourself, am I relationally rich or am I dealing with relational poverty? Because one thing I know, holding stuff in is not healthy at all. We're seeing too many black people pass away in their 20s, in their 30s. And it's not been suicide cases. It's not. Now that is on the rise, unfortunately, with younger black children. But we're seeing people pass away from stress, hypertension, stress, hypertension, high blood pressure. We got to stop holding stuff in. And I understand you can't release with everybody. I get it. But we have to start doing what is necessary to make sure that we find a place of release and not hold it in. All right. Let's go back to love stories God told. The next couple that we're looking at here is Isaac and Rebecca. Anybody here familiar with Isaac and Rebecca? Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac's, their marriage, and I thought this was very interesting the way that they, that they phrased this. From the Adam and Eve story, they said the marriage was made by God. There was no ceremony mentioned. We know they had children, Cain, Abel, and Seth. The most memorable scene from scripture was Adam awakening to see Eve, the first woman. Their greatest obstacle was sustaining their love after they were banished from Eden. Their compatibility was high <laughs> because they were the only two people created for each other to complete and complement each other. Now, this is what the writer has to say about Isaac and Rebecca. Their marriage was arranged by an angel. Their children, Jacob and Esau, were twins. A lot of people talk about Jacob and Esau, but they don't really talk about Isaac and Rebecca, the parents. The most memorable scene was the first sight of seeing one another. 
The greatest obstacle was trusting that God was making the match. Their compatibility was probably good because they shared a heritage of faith and family. So I'm not going to get into the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Um, I want to see if they make mention of where the story is. It is in Genesis. There we go. Genesis 24. This is one of my, I would say one of my favorite stories on love in the scriptures. Um, they say here that it was arranged by an angel, but I often say, especially in this contemporary time, when we talk about the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I know I asked God to do for me before I got married, I said, number one, he has to love God more than he loves me because I'm going to jack up. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to be fallible. I'm going to mess stuff up. <laughs> but if he is committed to God and he is committed to loving as God loves me, we going to be all right. So that was one of my qualifications. The second was I asked the Holy Spirit to be head of my search committee. Because I said to God, I said, Lord, I don't want to waste time. I do not want to waste time. You all already know this with me. That's a pet peeve of mine. Don't waste my time. That was my pet peeve. It still is. Don't waste my time. And this was also in relationships. Raise your hand if you feel the way I do. Put some hearts on there. You don't want nobody wasting your time when it comes to relationships, especially not romantic ones, ladies. So I decided early on, I said, listen, God, <laughs> I'm not dating. And I know people are like, what? You ain't dating. Girl, how you gonna find somebody? I decided at 18, I was not dating. Now, come on, 18, freshman year of college, and you ain't going to date? Girl, <laughs> my friends was like, this girl done going off her rocker. <laughs> I said, mm-mm, mm-mm, get somebody else to do it. <laughs> get somebody else to do it. And I know dating is all the rage. It's all the rave. It's It really is. But from 14 to 18, I had had enough. Okay? I'm just telling you. From 14 to 18, I had had enough. I had seen enough. I was like, if this is what y'all is out here doing, I don't want it. I don't want none of it. So when I gave my life to the Lord, I said, number one, he's got to love you more than he loves me. And number two, I ain't dating. Get somebody else to do it. <laughs> I'm going to work on me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on me. That was my plan. I'm going to work on me. I'm going to work on my prayer life. I'm going to work on getting myself right within so that I can be someone that someone wants to receive in a, in a relationship. That's what I'm going to focus on. So 
I was in college working on my working toward my degree. I was preaching on campus. And when I wasn't doing those two things, working toward my degree, preaching on campus, trying to get a, a part-time job on campus, I was working on my personal self because I realized I didn't want to bring a broken self into a relationship. So for me, it, there wasn't a reason for me to date because I knew that I needed to get some things together for myself. And then I put it in God's hands and I said, Lord, hey, I want the Holy Spirit to be head of this search committee. He, God, Father God, you know me. You know me better than I know myself. You know the kind of person that I am going to need for my life. You know the kind of person that's going to, that is going to help me to grow. You know the per kind of person that is going to match my temperament and I match their temperament. You know us better than we know ourselves. So I find it very interesting that this author talks about how Isaac and Rebecca's marriage was arranged by an angel. And I said, and, and somebody asked me the question, well, you know, if you're not dating, how, how is this supposed to work? How are you supposed to, you know, meet this person? And I was like, I'm not trying to figure that out. <laughs> I just know that when the time is right, you know, I had my eye on somebody. I did. I was like, when the time is right, if that's what is supposed to be there, then it will happen. And guess what? That didn't happen. The person that I thought, the person that I thought was going to be my spouse, that did not happen. And now I'm looking back. <laughs> I'm going to be married 23 years in July. And listen, every time I think about what God didn't allow, cue to shout music. <laughs> listen, every time I think about how God's ways are higher than mine. Cue the shout music, okay? So I, I believe in the goodness of God. I believe in God's love of me and God's love towards me. That God is not going to point me in the direction of somebody that's going to do me harm. So I trusted him. But then I was like, is there any precedent in scripture for this, this kind of faith, this kind of belief that whoever God brings to you, God is going to bring the best opportunity towards you? Is there any kind of precedent for that? And the reality is Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca had to make a choice about marrying Isaac sight unseen. So I know a lot of people think all of these reality shows that are coming out, the, I guess, love at first sight or marriage at first sight or whatever their name. I think people think that that is a new concept. It's not. Rebecca married Isaac sight unseen. The only thing she had to go by was his servant and what his servant was physically offering her. 
and she went with the servant's family. I preached on this before, but she went with, with um, his representative, which I think is interesting because people say when you're getting into a relationship with a person, the person you're really meeting in, in those first, I, I would say first couple of months is you're really meeting their representative. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happened with Rebecca. She was literally meeting his representative. And based on his representative, she made a choice that, yes, I'm going to covenant in this marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Go read it. Genesis 24. They had to trust, and she most certainly had to trust, that God was making the match. She had to trust that God was making the match. Now, we know Isaac's name means laughter. And Rebecca's name means flattery or beautiful. So let's get into this little bit of reading here before I turn it over for us to have some conversation. Genesis 24, verse 63. This is toward the end of their interaction. But again, read Genesis 24. It says, he went out to the field one evening to meditate mm -hmm, and to pray because they had sent out a representative to find him a wife. As he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. When the old servant heard Abraham's request, his eyes widened in surprise. In all his years of loyal service, his duties had never included matchmaking. So yes, there was a matchmaking representative sent out. Again, matchmaking is not a new concept. Eliza knew that ever since Sarah had died, Abraham had been fretting about getting a wife for Isaac, his miracle son born to Sarah in her old age. Abraham was worried that with Isaac's mother gone, his son would, would get lonely and, God forbid, marry one of the local pagan women. Now, Abraham was asking Eliza, his chief servant, to travel all the way to their people in Padanaram in order to bring back a wife for Isaac. The servant said, but what if the woman won't come back with me without meeting Isaac? Hello, Abraham. Then can I take your son back there with me? Never, Abraham exclaimed. <laughs> the Lord promised me. Why do you think Abraham said, I don't want my son to go with you? Why do you think? I think Abraham was wise enough to know that is a possibility that he could go back, meet somebody, and then be convinced to stay in a place that was not promised to him. How many people do that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> the Lord promised me to your offspring, I will give this land. He spread his bony arms wide. This land. And now this same God will send an angel ahead of you to help you get a wife for my son. Did you hear that? So those of you all who are like, I keep picking the wrong thing. 
God, every time I try to pick something, it doesn't go right. So I'm going to need you to send the angel ahead of me. Men, I'm going to need you to send the angel ahead of me because I can't seem to pick right. Send the angel ahead of me. Can you send the Holy Spirit out to be a part of this search committee? Because I don't want to keep selecting what does not work. So I need you to go ahead of me. Thank you. Hallelujah. Amen. I say. Whatever greeting you use, whatever salutation you use. Okay. Upon hearing this, Eliza promised to do exactly as his master wished. Soon he and his men were making the 700 mile journey away from Canaan toward Padanaram. With each step, Eliza heard the clinking of coins, gold ornaments, inlaid ivory treasures that were in his bags. So the representative did not come empty-handed. Let's be clear on that. The sound reminded him of a young girl's laughter that he carried dowry gifts for a new bride for Isaac. Isaac himself had appeared to have hesitations about the plan and offered a few suggestions to his father's chief servant. Let her be as beautiful and as radiant and good as my mother. The old servant nodded and grunted. I will do my best for my master Abraham, he answered sternly. So far as his son Isaac is concerned, I will do my best for him also. When finally Elijah's caravan arrived at a well outside of the town of Nahor in the region of Padanaram, Elijah lifted his hands in prayer. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be, Lord, that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for Isaac. So there was a prayer that went forth. God, can you give me some identifying signs that this one is the one? Just trying to help somebody today. He was not vague. <laughs> he was specific. Okay. He also went to the place where young maidens were. She also showed up at the place where young maidens were supposed to be found. Again, let's be clear. Before he had even finished praying, a young woman approached carrying a jar on her shoulder. She was a radiant beauty. Eliza could tell by her dress that she had never been married. When the girl went down to the well and filled her jar, Eliza went to her and said, please give me a little water. Drink, my lord, she said brightly and quickly, lowered the jar to give him a drink. The servant drank slowly. As he watched, he found himself hoping she might be the one. But would God answer his prayer so quickly? After the girl had given Eliza a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. I can imagine right at that moment that Eliza probably started choking and spitting up his water. For the next hour, Eliza watched in amazement and with growing excitement as this energetic young woman brought water to this whole caravan. When the camels had finished drinking, Eliza approached. Now, I always wondered about this and like, why is he saying, will she water the camels too? But then the Holy Spirit let me know that this was almost like a vetting of her strength. <laughs> 
It was a, a vetting of her endurance and it was a vetting of her willingness and ability to care for the expanseness of what she would be coming into if she married Isaac. I need an organ right there. Somebody put an organ symbol up there for me. I'm teaching real good. I'm teaching better than people saying amen. Listen, he was testing her strength. He was testing her endurance. And he was testing her ability to care for the expansion of what she would be coming into. People out here shouting they want a queen. <laughs> People out here shouting they want a queen. Do you know what it entails to upkeep a queen? Oh, see, we don't want to talk about it. People saying they want a king. Do you know what it entails to upkeep a king? To upkeep a king's household. Do you understand the weight of what you say that you want to carry? Okay, I'm done. I'm done. When the camels had finished drinking, Eliza approached. Whose daughter are you? He asked. And please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? I am Rebecca, the daughter of Bethuel. We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Now, Eliza was nearly leaping with happiness. Praise be to the Lord God of my master Abraham, he blurted out to, to the startled girl. He has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to, to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's very relatives. You mean to tell me that if you ask God for bread, he going to give you a rock? Some of us are stopping short of what we ask God for. And that is not on God. That is on you. Do I need to repeat myself? Okay. With a flourish, Eliza reached in his saddlebags and pulled out carefully wrapped jewelry, including a gold nose ring, two gold bracelets. Then he held out that he, these he held out to young Rebecca. She took the gifts, offered a few fumbling words and turned and ran in the direction of home. When Rebecca's brother Laban saw the exquisite jewelry his sister was waving around, he hurried back to the well. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. He called to Eliza and his men. Why are you standing out here? Soon Eliza was seated around the table with Rebecca's family, but he refused to eat until he had told them the nature of his mission. He explained why Abraham had sent him. Then he recounted in detail how he had kneeled by the well and proposed a deal with God to find the right bride for Isaac. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Now, I'm not going to get into the other part of this, but that same night, or I believe that morning, um, her father had passed away. I believe that is what happened. Her father passed away. And then it was left to the brother and the mother to negotiate her leaving. And the brother, of course, Laban, was trying to be slick. <laughs> 
trying to get them to stay behind and all this other stuff. And Elijah was like, no, that's not my instructions. We getting ready to go. And they left. But there is in Hebrew tradition that Laban attempted to um, poison the servant to get him to stay longer, but he wound up poisoning his father instead. And so this negotiation had to be made. But that's a whole other topic that we won't get into about greedy relatives. <laughs> the point and the focus of this is the fact that he was led to the right place. He was led to find a woman that would be compatible for Isaac. But he knew that he was not doing it on his own. He knew that he needed help. And he sought out God for that help. Now, we will come back to this again tomorrow because, again, I don't want to read the rest of this um, until tomorrow. But I hope that you at least got this initial part. He's asking, he's saying, I can't do this on my own. I need the God of Abraham to help me in this endeavor. I need, and even as we saw in the book, what happened to you, I need community. This was a community effort. It was a father who was concerned about his son, who sent out his servant, who employed the help of God, and they employed the ange their angelic help to be successful. Did you know that your community includes God, creator, maker of the universe? Did you know that your community includes angels? I know people joke about the African angels, right? But your community does include your angelic allies. Your community does include your angelic help. <clears throat> and a lot of people have not ever ever called on their angelic help for assistance that's been with them their entire life. But again, that's another conversation. All right. I've got about 10 minutes here. 10 minutes. I'm going to go over time because I know that Pastor Ben wants to share his insights on today. If you are listening by anchor, I do not have 10 minutes for you. Unfortunately, my time is running out on the on the podcast today, but I do want to thank you for your time and attention. You can always come and see the conclusion of these conversations on my IG live at Daring Dialogues. Just look for the episode number that matches this podcast and you'll be able to find this particular broadcast. Have a great and wonderful day. May the favor of God go before you. May your angelic allies go before you. And may you have a prosperous and wonderful Wednesday.